so I'm ready to get started. I want to do a series of introductory comments about Habakkuk. Uh, if we were in, in class together and we were in, I'd have you pronounce Habakkuk with me, but it's not a terribly familiar name. <laughs> but Habakkuk is uh, one of the great minor prophets of the Old Testament. And if you look at your notes in the introduction, there are a number of things I'm going to review using those as well as adding a few things. It was written, it, the, the book, uh, the prophecies of Habakkuk were written before 605 BC, and I'll explain why that's important uh, in just a minute. Secondly, during the time of Habakkuk, he is a contemporary, and you have a chart of the prophets in the first page of notes, and I'll show that in a slide in a minute. He's a contemporary of Zephaniah, which you may not be familiar with, but also J Jeremiah, which I'm sure you are familiar with. He's one of the greatest of the major prophets. The, the second thing I want to make by way of introductory comments is just looking at this map. The book of Habakkuk and the kingdom of Judah. Now, we are in the mid-7th century. That would be the 600 B.C. And at that time, uh, remember from what we discussed when we talked a little bit about Jonah, the northern kingdom of Israel has gone out of existence. It was conquered in 722 BC and destroyed. The people were dispersed. So the northern kingdom does not exist. The only kingdom of Jews left is the kingdom of Judah, the Davidic kingdom, the Davidic monarchy. And the king at the time that Josiah writes is Josiah. And I have that printed in your notes. He was a good king, a reformed king. Uh, one of the, the great heroes of the monarchy in, in, in the history of Israel. But despite his reforms and his godly character, the people remained committed to idolatry, immorality, and just basic, uh, corrupt, decadent, declining society. And no matter what happened, that downward spiral continued. And that's what upsets Habakkuk, as you see at the beginning of the book. Thirdly, the time uh, that Habakkuk is writing during the reign of Josiah, an enormous geopolitical shift is occurring in the ancient world. Now, I'm showing you this map, and I have arrows and things underlined. I want you to notice Babylonia, and I have a big, thick red line underlining it, and then go to the left or to the west and the southwest, you see Egypt. Babylonia has just conquered the Assyrian Empire. Nebuchadnezzar is the new leader. His father, Nabopolassar, had destroyed the Assyrian Empire, sacked the capital in 612 BC. And then I want your eye to go to not quite the center of the map, a little left of the center, where I've underlined and have a big arrow at a place called Carchemish. Carchemish is one of the greatest battles in human history. Whenever you see the 10 best battles, greatest, most important battles in history of the human race, Carchemish is always in the top 10. Because that was a battle where the forces of Babylonia under Nebuchadnezzar and the forces of Egypt under Pharaoh Necho, N-E-C-O, met. And Babylonia won that battle. And it meant that Babylonia would now sweep down into Judah, and he will lay siege to Jerusalem. And I'll say more about that in just a minute, and go over into Egypt. 
So that battle is a turning point. It, it, it helps to explain the rise of the Babylonian Empire, what's technically called the Neo-Babylonian Empire, but anyway, and the, the rising power of Nebuchadnezzar. And I think all of you have heard of Nebuchadnezzar. He's a major king in the book of Daniel. Uh, he's a king that almost everybody in human history remembers him from their history classes. So with that said, uh, in terms of the map, I, I want to go to this side slide because what this does is summarize some of what I've just said. The Assyrian Empire has come to an end. The Neo-Babylonian Empire has replaced Syria. And that occurred largely in 612 BC when Nebuchadnezzar's father destroyed Nineveh. Egypt is in resurgence. I showed you that. And Egypt and Babylonia clash at that very, very important battle of Carchemish. And Judah, kingdom of Israel has gone out of existence. Judah is caught between these two powers. And that is often the way it was throughout human history. But this is an extremely important thing to remember about understanding the historical background of the book of Habakkuk. A major tectonic shift in the geopolitical world of the ancient uh, Near Eastern world is occurring. And Judah, the kingdom that Habakkuk is a prophet to, Judah is caught between these two. We have that slide. I'm sorry? Do we have that slide that you just now showed? I don't think so. I mean, I just, it's pretty simple. I mean, okay. if you want a copy of it, I guess Glenn could send it to you. You do have a copy of this in your notes. Yes. This shows you, and this is way beyond anything, but I love this slide. I use it a great deal because it shows you all the prophets of Israel. There are four major prophets and 12 minor prophets and where they fit. And I underline in a thick red line, Habakkuk. And you see where he is. He is right, he is prophesying right before the exile, right before Nebuchadnezzar conquers Judah and takes the Jewish people into exile in Babylonia. And that's that, that kind of orange rectangular box is the exile. And you also notice that Jeremiah, whose name is at the bottom, is a contemporary of Habakkuk. So what I'm just trying to stress to you in a lot of different ways, Habakkuk, although he's short book, only three chapters, a minor prophet, he is writing about and talking about in his arguing with God, because he's really arguing with God, uh, in one of the most important periods in human history, certainly one of the most important periods in the history of Judah. And it's, that's what I'm trying to get across to you in these various introductory comments. And you do have a copy of this, I believe, in the last page of your notes. But and this just shows you the exchange in a graph in a, in, a, in a slide between Habakkuk and God. He, this is Habakkuk, he is ticked off at God because he doesn't think God is doing anything about the corruption and immorality and, and horrible situation in Judah. And he says, God, why aren't you doing anything? And God's response is, I am doing something. I am sending Babylonia to discipline you. Then Habakkuk responds, how can you use an evil nation to discipline your people? And that just goes back and forth, back and forth, back and forth, until chapter three, Habakkuk, in a, in a sense, just falls on his face and says, God, you are greater than anything I could imagine. And it's one of the great, great worship chapters of the Bible, as Habakkuk responds to the sovereignty and goodness and providence of his God. So, 
I've given you an overview. I've given you a little summary of the geopolitical situation. Now we're ready to start the text. Any questions? Yeah, what's the difference between a major and a minor prophet, Jim? <clears throat> the length of the book. The length. Yep. Not the number, but the length. Well, I don't know what you mean by the number. The the length of the book. I mean... Uh, how thick the pages are. How many pages? <laughs> not how thick the pages are. But, <laughs> I mean, Daniel, that's major prophets are Isaiah, Jeremiah, Daniel, and Ezekiel. And their books are all long books and detailed books. Okay. Whereas, the, and and they're, they're dealing with a lot of prophetic material, whereas the minor prophets are usually addressed to one specific area with one specific point in mind. And like we studied Jonah, Jonah's a minor prophet. He's dealing with one thing, God sending him to Nineveh. Nahum is dealing with one thing, God's destruction of Nineveh. Obadiah is dealing with one thing, God destroying Edom. Um, and I mean, I could go on and on. Yeah. So, yeah. The, the, then then I, had, I had another, uh, I guess, uh, comment. I, I have a lot of respect for Habakkuk in the sense <laughs> that he's, he's addressing a sincere concern that he has to God. And he's, and I, I think that probably that's probably healthy for us, isn't it? As we go through life. Well, you know, in another way of addressing, I'm going to talk about that when we get into chapter one, uh, Habakkuk is asking the question that you and I can ask today, God, why are you allowing so much evil to exist? And that's what Habakkuk is he's saying that, God, we are your people. We're your covenant people. And you're allowing all this corruption, evil, idolatry, immorality to exist. Why aren't you doing something? And we can, we can say the same thing about almost any, in, in our own personal lives, as well as anything you study in history. God, <laughs> you let Hitler be in power for 12 years. Why did you do that? He was one of the most monstrously evil men in all of human history. Why did you allow that? I mean, you could just substitute Hitler for Stalin, who was a brutal dictator, Mao Zedong, the current Vladimir Putin in Russia, or Xi Jinping in China. I mean, you could say that about any of these horrible rulers and the periods and times in history. And that's what Habakkuk is asking. And God's response is, and this is really important for us to remember in 2021, just because you can't see me acting doesn't mean I'm not acting. Your Because you and I, as mortal people, you and I have a view that is essentially locked in space and time. God is eternal. He sees the end from the beginning. He sees how everything, he is not confined to time. And so that's important for us. And that's part of what he's going to say in, in God's response to Habakkuk. But it's also integral to another book of the Bible, the book of Job, which we are not talking about right now. All right, uh, any questions? I've got uh, one on the infographic here. Um, you have those stripes. Could you explain the stripes where Jeremiah and Ezekiel are? Uh, yes, there are three, there are three exile uh, blocks that occur of Jews being taken to Babylon. The first, uh, the first vertical stripe is 605, and that's when Daniel is taken, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and all the others. The second one is 597 BC. That's when Ezekiel was taken. 
And then in 586 BC is when Nebuchadnezzar the third and final siege is when uh, he utterly and totally destroys Jerusalem, burns it, takes all of the temple treasuries to Babylon, and um, thousands, well, tens of thousands of Jews to Babylon and, and settles them uh, in a valley east, actually uh, southeast of, of Babylon. Does that answer your question? Yeah. Uh, well, I just wanted, I love this uh, infographic. It's really helpful. Yeah, it's a, um, it's a great, it's a great, it really is. It summarizes so much. Having the, you know, the minor prophets, the individual reasons um, on this would be really great as well for those of us who are not as linked into it. And, and Jim, I'm sending these slides out after the. Okay. Thank you. Thank you. That's great, Glenn. Thank you. Jim, I have another question for you, if you don't mind. <laughs> um, you know, you mentioned Germany, and at the time, um, the churches uh, were in existence. I think there were like 40% um, Protestant in Germany, 20% were, um, were um, Protestant, and then like 1% uh, represented um, the Jewish faith. And, and yet when he was assuming this power, the church, as I understand the history of it, they were not vocal on this at all. They were, they were silent, almost like lambs going just passive. Um, and, and as we see any nation, including our own, perhaps, um, what is the role of the church in, in speaking out against violations of, of uh, religious uh, freedom as a general? Uh, well, uh, that's an extremely broad question, but um, the, the situation in Germany in the 1930s as Hitler is rising to power, um, the state church of Germany is the Lutheran church and that, that church, for the most part, uh, by, by far the majority of people in Germany, it would be well over 50%, were a part of the Lutheran church. But the Lutheran church, you have to remember something. I'm not trying to defend them, right? all I'm doing is explaining. You must remember something in the 1930s. The greatest fear in Europe was Joseph Stalin to the east. Stalin was focusing on the spread of international communism. Uh, his horrible purges were going on where he killed millions of people. He starved the Ukraine, one of the greatest massacres in history. He starved them into submission. And people were saying, better Hitler than Stalin. Again, I'm not trying to, just, I'm just trying to explain it. Because the fear was of an atheistic, militant totalitarian regime to the east. And if you're in Germany, you are right, you are very close to Soviet Russia. And, and with that, there, there was not a complacency, but an acceptance of Hitler because of the greater fear of Stalin. But as Hitler got into power, and as he consolidated his power and became the totalitarian monster that he became, and they saw what he did in Czechoslovakia in 1938, and they saw what he did in invading Poland, September 1st, 1939, 
all of a sudden they realize they are supporting a monster. And then you have the, re the rise of men like Martin Niemöller, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, and many others who formed what became called the Confessing Church, which was an, altern an alternative Lutheran movement to uh, object to what the state church was doing. And many of them, uh, and you all know what happens ultimately to Bonhoeffer, but many of them will end up uh, being persecuted and some even martyred. Um, I think the, 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 the challenge is always for the church is um, what, you choose, what you choose to speak about when you're talking about political issues in your country. And I think uh, you, have to, you have to frame that around what you think uh, is most important for a Christian leader to do. And um, if it's all right with you, I'd like to avoid talking about that topic right now. Because uh, we're- Could I substitute a, uh, a question on replacement theology in that context as opposed to politics? All right. What do you want to say about replacement theology? Uh, in, in other words, a lot of the reason that people were uh, quiet about uh, the persecution of the Jews in the in the 30s had to do with, well, they're not the church anymore. They blew it. So it's the Christian church well, that, that has that, replaced them. That was particularly, and that is actually, and it's still today in 2020, is the official theological position of the Roman Catholic Church. Exactly. That the, that the Jews, God is done with the Jews mm -hmm. because they had their chance, so to speak, rejected Jesus. And now the church, a, a new institution, uh, the church replaces Israel. And that's why it's nicknamed replacement theology, church replaces Israel. Now, that's an unbiblical position in my view. I, I would be hard, I would be hard pressed to defend that, but some do. The Lutheran Church does not necessarily agree with and does not adopt a, a replacement theological position. And today, uh, the ELCA almost has no theological position on anything. Right. That's a horribly <laughs> cynical statement, but that's basically true. Yeah. They, they bought hook, line, and sinker into uh, theological liberalism. But that definitely explains the silence of the Roman Catholic Church during the Holocaust. And that, that will remain a controversy until the Vatican opens all the files of, uh, of Pope Paul VI and all those during, the, during World War II. Were they silent intentionally? And that's, that's a question that we can't possibly resolve today. Would it be all right if I get into the text now? Let's look at Habakkuk chapter one and um, you, in your notes and outline, I tried to outline it around these questions and the dialogue between Habakkuk and God. Now, I'm, what my, my prayer was that everything I did by way of introduction will help you to understand why Habakkuk is asking these questions of God. The other thing I want you to remember is that he is a prophet in Judah during the time of King Josiah. And as I said earlier, Josiah is a good reform king. He tried to deal away with all the idolatry and high places, etc., cetera, uh, in, in, in Judah. But underneath that, these actions of the state under Josiah, there's still the rot and corruption of an immoral, declining society. And that's, that indicates, once again, a, a major premise that we have to learn. You can't pass laws to change people's hearts. 
You can pass a lot of laws, but only the gospel and only the transformational work of the Holy Spirit when a person puts their faith in the Lord will really bring about the change. And so they listened to what Josiah was doing, but they didn't obey him. And they, they, they just went along. And as soon as Josiah dies, he's killed in a battle with the Egyptians. As soon as Josiah dies, they go back to their old ways. So, I mean, that's, just, that's an important, you can pass a lot of laws, but you cannot change the hearts of people by law. Only the gospel does that. All right. The verse one just introduces you the oracle uh, uh, that Habakkuk the prophet saw. And I'll explain why he uses that word saw as we get into it. I read from the ESV translation, the term oracle is literally the Hebrew word burden, that I have a burden to share from God as a prophet. I'm paraphrasing what verse one is. And it, when it is then shared, it becomes an oracle, a decree from God a word from God, an inspired word from God, if you will. Now, that may or may not mean anything. I just wanted to make sure in case any of you had the translation oracle, what does that mean? And that's what I tried to explain. All right, now verse 2, we begin to read the series of questions that Habakkuk poses. And notice that the name of God he's using is Yahweh. When you have Lord in capitals, that's Yahweh. I'll just translate it that way. Oh, Yahweh, how long shall I cry for help and you will not hear? Let's stop for just a minute. What we are to infer from that is from Habakkuk's perspective, the tension of unanswered prayer. He has been praying to God about these things for an extended period of time. And what is he inferring? God is silent. Why are you not answering my prayers? Why are you not responding? So how long shall I cry for help? Then you will not hear. You see this incidentally. You see this all over the Psalms. There are numerous Psalms where the psalmist will begin, I have been praying to you for a very long time, sometimes even mentioned years, and you remain silent, God. And I think at least I assume, a lot of you listening here in our class today can identify with that. You may have been praying for a loved one for years, and you still don't see them coming to Christ. I studied under a man who prayed for 42 years for his dad, until the end of his dad's life, his dad came to Jesus Christ. Praying for 42 years for God to do something in his dad's life, and finally God answered. So, Silent. This is an important takeaway from studying the book of, of, of Habakkuk. Perceived silence from God does not mean God is enacting. And that is exactly what he's going to say to him. He continues, or cry to you violence and you will not save. During the 600s, when Josiah is ruling, uh, not the entire decade, or the entire uh, century, but during that period, you would think that there would be evidence um, from uh, Jerusalem, the capital, of people listening and adhering and changing and reforming and repenting. You're not. And he uses the word violence, 
which I'm not sure that's the greatest translation because you think of people killing each other and beating each other up and abuse. It can involve that, but it's more of the, of the moral violence of people. There is immorality, there's corruption, there's self-centeredness, there's apostasy that's running rampant. And so what he's really saying is the spiritual violence of rebellion against God, and you will not save. Now, that doesn't mean salvation from sin. That means deliver the nation. God, all that's happening, you won't deliver us. You won't rescue us. And then he goes on. Why do you make me see iniquity? Why do you idly look at wrong? The word iniquity is a Hebrew term that relates to injustice. The word wrong is a term from, uh, from the law that has to do with moral and ethical failure. So these are terms that would be used of indicting a nation of its moral ethical failure in terms of God's law. And so that's what he's saying. You know, I've been praying about this for a long time, and God, you're not doing anything. There's moral and social violence. There is iniquity. There is injustice everywhere. There is the moral failure and ethical breakdown of a civilization defying your moral law. He continues, destruction and violence are before me. Strife and contention arise. Now, what you see here at the end of verse 3 is what's called Hebrew parallelism, but it's just, he's saying the same thing in parallel phrases. Destruction and violence are before me. Strife and contention arise. So all four of those words, again, I'm reading for the ESV translation, destruction, violence, strife, contention, they all do with injustice and moral corrupt aspects of a society in decline. And so he's, he's saying, God, why are you allowing this to happen? Now, in back of this is the assumption as well, which you've heard me talk about a lot in our class. These are the covenant people of God. These are the people that God has the unconditional Abrahamic covenant and the Mosaic covenant, which defines how they are to walk with God in that, in that covenant relationship. And what Habakkuk is observing is a total breakdown of everything. Nobody cares about this. Nobody's following your law. And he just uses these words that are usually legal terms of indictment against a society or an, even an individual person of total, total moral and ethical failure. And again, his, his question is, God, why aren't you doing anything? We are your people, and you can look at and there's no evidence whatsoever that these people are taking seriously their relationship with you. And then the crown of his, his statement is verse 4. So, it's inferential. Therefore, the law is paralyzed. Justice never goes forth. 
The law is paralyzed. The leaders are totally corrupt. The Levitical priests are totally corrupt. Justice never goes forth. There is no righteous enforcement or adherence to the law. Now, if you take what, what he says in verse 3 and what he says in the first half of verse 4, you have a decadent society in decline, and the downward spiral of evil is crystal clear. This is a society in decline. And you could say, if I can be very blunt, which may offend some of you, but if I can be very blunt, you could say exactly the same thing about American society. American society is a morally corrupt society. It is a society evidencing moral decline and a downward spiral, similar to what you read in Romans 1, 18 through 34. And so Habakkuk, even during the reign of good King Josiah, is saying, Lord, these are your people, but they bear no evidence whatsoever of taking anything about you, anything about your law, anything about your values, seriously. This is a corrupt, decadent society. The law is not functioning. Justice does not characterize this nation. Its leaders are corrupt, the Levitical priests are corrupt, and justice does not characterize this nation. For the wicked, he concludes, for the wicked surround the righteous, so justice goes forth perverted. That's a great translation, perverted. And so, I mean, this is, it's almost depressing, <laughs> but this is a very serious thing that Habakkuk is bringing before the Lord. Okay, any questions about either the terms that Habakkuk chooses to use, which I tried to explain just a little bit, but also overall what he's really saying. Okay? Uh, Jim, I have another question. I'm full of questions today because I spent a lot of time on this book looking at it. Uh, <clears throat> um, the uh, aspect of a Christian on cruise control, um, or a Christian who said, well, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to be in. So therefore, you know, whatever. Um, I don't want to get too involved with God. I don't want to receive too much direction from him versus seeking him and his will on a daily basis. Um, my question deals with just because we have made a decision that was sincere and honest at one time in our life. Um, what is our responsibility to God after that point? Uh, well, our, our, our responsibility, and that's a, it's a big question. There's a lot of ways I could go through in answering that, but Basically, our responsibility, if I'm understanding your question correctly, is a stewardship responsibility. It has, two, it has two aspects to it. Number one is you put your faith in Christ for your salvation. That, that is the beginning of the relationship. Again, we've used these words because of the words that the Apostle Paul uses. Justification. That is your declaration of righteousness. You've been declared righteous. You've been declared not guilty, etc. Then you begin that walk. So it's that constant, constant reminder of your position and who you are in Christ. 
But that second aspect, which again, the Apostle Paul calls sanctification, which I like to use because I think it's such important, is that process of, of our walking with God in loving obedience as he transforms us into the image of his son. So to put your faith in Christ to deal with your sin, you understand the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus was for you, you apply it to your life by faith, is the beginning of that relationship. And as I've said many times in this class, I think, your relationship with God changes from condemned sinner to righteous judge of the universe to child of God and your heavenly father. And so your heavenly father has expectations for you, and your heavenly father will lovingly discipline you if you, if you are not interested in walking with him in loving obedience. So I, I don't know if I'm answering your question, but that, that's how I think I want to respond to what you were saying. Maybe I'm off base from what you were asking. Well, I think, um, I guess the point is that we still have a responsibility to pursue God, right? And his will oh, yeah. for our lives and keep that active and, and pray to him and seek his face in all things rather than just, yep, I did it. I put the switch on, and now I'm a Christian. Our walk with God is not a passive walk of complacency and apathy. It's an active pursuit of him personally. And as an active pursuit of him personally is also an active pursuit of walking in loving obedience with him. We learn that. That's not instinctive. We learn that. And God is in the process of transforming us from the inside out. And, and our, our relationship with him, with him is one of active obedience. The Christian life is not passive and complacent and apathetic. And if that's what we think, God's going to shake us out of that pretty quickly. All right, any other questions or comments about these first four verses, which are rich I tried to take time on almost every one of these key words, rich in meaning. Habakkuk is in effect saying, God, everything's a mess. Why aren't you doing anything? All right, let's look at God's response. That begins in verse 5 uh, of chapter 1. <clears throat> the Lord, Look, now this is God speaking. Look among the nations and see. The word nations is goyim. <laughs> so, I mean, that's why when you read the word nation in English in the 20th century, you think of nation states with recognizable boundaries, etc. That's not what that word means. Nations is goyim. It's all of the people that are not Jews. <laughs> all of the ethnic and racial diversity of planet Earth. Look among the nations and see. Wonder and be astounded. Whoa. Verse 5a is a command. Get off your duff, Habakkuk, and look. You're going to be in wonder. You're going to be astounded. Why? Second half of verse 5. Because I am doing a work in your days that you would not believe if told. Now, this is 
personal silence on my part to let it sink in. It's exactly what I said earlier. God is saying to Habakkuk, just because you don't see anything doesn't mean I'm ignoring this. It doesn't mean I'm not acting. Now he gets specific in verse 6. For behold, I am raising up the Chaldeans. That's an older name for the Babylonians. Chaldea refers to a little section in the southern part of the Mesopotamian Valley. I don't mean to bore you with that, but that's what that means. But it's just another reference to the Babylonians. That bitter and hasty nation, which is really an interesting way to describe them, who march through the breadth of the earth to seize dwellings not their own. This is a bitter, you could translate hasty. I prefer to translate it impetuous. I know that maybe doesn't help. But a bitter, impulsive, impetuous nation who marches and destroys and seizes everything that's not their own. This is a nation of conquest. This is a nation of imperial domination. And Babylonia will conquer much of the ancient world. And that's why when you study Daniel chapter 2 and Daniel chapter 7, the first of the four great world empires, the first one is Babylon. And the greatest of their kings is Nebuchadnezzar. He was probably one of the greatest rulers of the ancient world in all of the ancient world history. But God is saying, I'm raising up the Babylonians, the Chaldeans, that will sweep through an imperial conquest in a bitter, impulsive, impetuous way. They're going to destroy and seize everything that's not their own. Verse 7, they are dreaded and fearsome. Their justice and dignity go forth from themselves. They are a law unto themselves. Babylonian law is self-serving. They are a people of law. Hammurabi's code in the old Babylonian Empire in the 18th century. But it's a law that serves themselves, not you. They're dreaded, they're fearsome, their justice and dignity are sourced in themselves. They don't follow my law. They are not committed to my moral law. They're not committed to my values. They're not committed to my virtues, God is saying. Their horses are swifter than leopards. And one of the things that the Babylonian Empire was known for was a cavalry that was enormously efficient. Deuteronomy chapter 28, verses 49 and 50 talk about that. More fierce than the evening wolves. So what's their cavalry like? They're like leopards. That references speed, more fierce than evening wolves. That emphasizes character. What are evening wolves like? They're ravaging. They tear up and destroy as scavengers. Their horsemen press proudly on. Their horsemen come from afar. They fly like an eagle. Now, that's a simile, like an eagle, swift to devour. 
an eagle, if you've ever watched, you know, in some of those nature channels on TV, if you ever watch a program on eagles, they have a very clear mission. Their eyesight and their eyes, they know exactly what they're doing. And then from the air, they pounce. So if you look at this, look at the three animals that God uses to describe the Babylonian armies, speed, character, and mission. The leopard, the wolf, and the eagle. That is the Babylonian army. And the Babylonian army will march in rapid conquest. Nebuchadnezzar's armies will sweep quickly way over into Egypt in a matter of a few years. And so God is just saying, just because you don't see anything, Habakkuk, doesn't mean I'm not doing anything. Continuing, verse 9. They all come for violence, all their faces forward. They gather captives like sand. And that is what the Babylonian Empire will be known for. And that's what's going to happen to the Jewish people. They will take captives and deport them to other parts of the empire. They don't only do that with the Jews, but the Bible always speaks about just the Jews. But they did that with everybody they conquered. They deported people and relocated them throughout the empire. So God says they gather captives like sand. They helplessly they collect people who are helpless and deport them. Continuing verse 10, at kings they scoff, at rulers they laugh. They laugh at every fortress where they pile up the earth and take it. <clears throat> Militarily, the Babylonian empire will show contempt for all authority. It doesn't matter how high the wall is around the city, how high the siege mount is, they will take it. And that's exactly what's going to happen to Jerusalem in 586 BC. They will break down the walls in the northern part of the city, come into the city and destroy it. Verse 11. Then they sweep by like the wind and go on. Guilty men whose own might is their God. No accountability, no justice, no righteousness, no repentance. They're only interested in conquest. So I take you back to the words in verse 6. I am raising up the Chaldeans. So if you have a Christian philosophy of history, your conclusion is God puts in power whom he wants to put in power to accomplish his purposes. Now, if you were Habakkuk, what would your response be to this? In a way, that was rhetorical, but in a way, uh-oh. Yeah, uh-oh. Um, yeah, I mean, you just... You're going to step back and say, well, wait a minute, hold it. <laughs> and this is exactly what Habakkuk is going to be upset about. Just a minute, God. We are your covenant people. We are the apple of your eye. We are the people with whom you have an unconditional unilateral covenant. And you are going to use these pagan, violent, impulsive, horrific, ruthless Babylonians to discipline us 
give me a break, God. You're using the unrighteous to judge the righteous. That's right. That's exactly what God is doing. And so it gives us a little window into the providential sovereignty of God that can be a little bit disturbing. <laughs> Jim, do you have a question? No. I saw, well, I saw I, your light go on. I thought you had a question. Well, I want to just, I mean, this is not the answer that Habakkuk wanted to hear. Exactly. And he, I'm sure he's wondering, there must be another way to do this. That's right. And in a lot of ways, he's like Jonah. He, he doesn't want to take what he's hearing now and promulgate it out to the rest of the country. But, but I'm wondering, is Habakkuk alone in all of this? Or are there many righteous Jews who are with him? Or Well, the answer to that, Broadly speaking, is yes, but specifically, Jim, he is very close to Zephaniah and very close to Jer Jeremiah. They would have, all three of those would have known each other. They are all in the court in Jerusalem. They are the prophets. But Jim, all three of them have, they're, they're different, but all three of them have the same message. <laughs> and that, that message is, and this is ultimately where Habakkuk is going to end up if you read through the whole book. But that, okay, God, I give up. You are the sovereign Lord of the universe. And what you're going to do is the right thing to do. I trust you and I fall down and worship you. And you'll see Zephaniah. Zephaniah is one of the major minor prophets who uses the phrase, the day of the Lord. He uses it over and over and over again. God smashing into history for judgment. And that's exactly what Zephaniah is mentioning. And then Jeremiah, which is a very long book. Jeremiah is, he is, he is prophesying at the point of Nebuchadnezzar's armies breaking through the walls of the northern ridge of the city. And he's, he's going to be saying exactly the same thing. So Jim, Habakkuk is not alone, but Habakkuk is approaching this from a different angle than Zephaniah or definitely from Jeremiah. And he is, he's, because he's been praying, he's been praying for, let's put it in the way you and I might put it. He's been praying for a revival because he can't figure out why God is letting this moral corruption continue in his among his covenant people of judah and as god had said go back to deuteronomy 28 god had said if you this is speaking to the jewish people if you do not commit to walking in loving obedience to me according to the law i will send you into exile those words were uttered in 1446 B.C. It is now 605 B.C., and God is about to do that. So in a very real sense, even for a prophet like Habakkuk, what God is declaring should not be a surprise. God said he would do this. And Judah has made, reached the point, not only God knows that, but Judah has reached the point where no matter what happens, they are not going to repent. And so God is going to discipline them severely 
and send them into a 70-year exile in Babylon, just like he said he would do. So, I, Jim, I hope I answered your question. He's not alone, but he's the only one that, at least we have according to Scripture, the only one that's asking these questions. Why aren't you doing anything, God? And God is saying, I am doing something. I'm so raising an unrighteous nation <laughs> to judge my righteous people. So, so if I'm looking at the timeline right here, and I might not be, uh, but it's roughly 20 years from the time that Habakkuk asks these questions of God and then the, the uh, exile in, was it 586? That's correct. That's correct. The, the final, that's right. Five, the final exile is at 586. Some are deported in 605, another group deported in 597, the final one is 586, when he, he Nebuchadnezzar totally destroys Jerusalem. That's right. So, I mean, you, you're, you're right. That, that, that's, a, that's about right. It's about 20 years. It's, it's not very long. <laughs> and Habakkuk, Habakkuk, as far as we know, Habakkuk will see all this, just like Jeremiah will see all this. They'll see what God does to his covenant people in Jerusalem. They're going to see the other, it. The, the other comment I wanted to make was that, I mean, you talked about God's sovereignty and providence, but in his omnipotence, he, I think you touched this, he knew there was no other way. That's right. Yes. And I mean, that's, and that in, in, in God's providence and his omniscience, this is a wonderful part of what God did. You know, the one thing the exile did for the Jewish people is it cured them of their penchant for idolatry. When they come back in 539 BC and then the years that follow that, because they come back in several ways. But anyway, as they come back and rebuild their temple, etc., they will never again struggle with idolatry. And that, that, that the exile cured the Jewish people of their penchant and their desire to worship other gods as well as him. And that that is a that's a marvelous example that God's methodology accomplishes its intended purpose. And he said he would do this. He said this to them right, at, right after the law was given. And, and it's recorded for us in Deuteronomy 28. He said he was going to do this if they do not walk in loving obedience. And now he's doing it. <laughs> and it is, it is a marvelous example of God's intervention in history to accomplish his purposes. And he will cure them of that desire that they had throughout their history to mix worship of God, the one true and only God, with the worship of the Baals and all these other crazy gods that are a part of their history. So you're right. In his omniscience, God knew this is the only way I can cure these people of their penchant for idolatry. And he ripped them out of their land, tore, destroyed all their homes, destroyed their temple, destroyed everything, and then they start over again after 539 B.C. But in starting over again in 539 BC, they never rule themselves. They're always under another leader, the Persians, then the Greeks, then the Roman Empire, then the Byzantine Empire, and then the Crusaders, and then under, under Islam until 1948. All right. Question, Jim. What was the average longevity of a human at that time? I'm sorry. What was your question again? What, Fred, um, people at the time. What was the, the, the longevity? Oh, the, the longevity. Oh, okay, okay. I'm sorry. I just didn't. I didn't hear your question. Um, well, that's a little hard 
to me for me to be precise because they didn't keep quite the records we keep. But typically, the average person in the ancient Near Eastern world lived to, into their 40s or 50s. Now, there were exceptions, lots of exceptions, but the typical person uh, lived into their 40s and 50s. It was not typical at all for somebody to be 70, 80 years old. There, I mean, there were people that lived that long, but that was not typical. Thanks. All right, now we've seen the first cycle and you can go to your chart there at the end of your note, that first cycle where his, he, he can't understand why God is enacting. God says, don't misunderstand my silence for inaction. I am providentially, I'm raising up an unrighteous nation to judge you. So what time is it? We got a, a little bit of time. Let me introduce this next part. I won't get into it because I'll have to start over again, but what, what is important is, is how Habakkuk then responds. And he responds almost incredulously. Are you not from everlasting, O Yahweh, my Elohim, my Holy One? What he is asking in that rhetorical question is the covenantal nature of God. God is a God of covenant. And that's what he's saying. Are you not from everlasting? I mean, eternal. That's your character. Oh, Yahweh, my God, my Elohim. So Habakkuk is establishing once again his personal relationship with the living God. My holy one. So it's, it's a marvelous summary of his relationship with God, but also sound doctrinal affirmations. This is my God, my Elohim, Yahweh, my Holy One. We shall not die. So he switches from my, the personal intimacy he has with God as God's prophet, to we, the covenantal people of God. We will not perish as a people. That's your promise to us. The unconditional unilateral covenant of Genesis 12 that is repeated over and over and over and over again throughout the Old Testament is unconditional unilateral promised by God. You are my people. So in a sense, what Habakkuk is doing is he's responding Whoa, God, you are the God of covenant, but God, you promised we shall not perish as a people. Oh, Yahweh, you have ordained them as a judgment, and you, O oh rock, have established them for reproof. This is wonderful. It really is. Habakkuk understands God is raising up the Babylonians for one purpose, to judge the covenant people of God. Let's use a different word there, to discipline the covenant people of God. Discipline is always, always, always restorative. It's not only punitive. 
God is not only punishing his people. More importantly, he seeks to restore his people. Get them back on the track of walking in loving obedience with him. And I think it was Jim Beck who said, in God's omniscience, he knew that God knew this is the only way this is going to be accomplished. God has been dealing with these people for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years. 1446 is when they were established as a nation and received the law, 1446 B.C. It's now virtually 605 B.C. They've crossed the line. There is no way they're going to repent and surrender this idolatrous spiritual adultery. I'm going to have to do what I said I was going to do. Discipline them severely and send them into exile. And Habakkuk is affirming that. First part of verse 12, the covenantal names and covenantal nature of God and your promise, we are not going to perish from this earth. So Yahweh, you have ordained, that's a word of sovereignty. You have ordained them, the Babylonians. You owe rock. You are a rock. You are our stable source of security and safety. You've established them for reproof. You know, reproof is correction, discipline. So this is language of strength, of faith in God. It's ultimate. Can I put it this way? Habakkuk realizes this is ultimately redemptive for his people. Now his whole tone changes. His whole direction changes. And he wants to understand God, Babylon, God, what are you going to do with them when they're done disciplining us? Well, if you want to know the answer to those questions, you've got to come back January the 6th. Okay? I actually didn't plan on that, but it's fantastic how it ended up to be able to say it. So, uh, just one final point. Are you with me? Uh, I, what I'm trying to do is really make Habakkuk come alive, because this is as relevant in 605 BC, or roughly 605 BC, as it is today in the end, uh, middle of, of December of 2020. These are relevant issues to ask, relevant questions, relevant perspectives to have. Hello, Jim. Uh, yes, sir. I would like to just read the I'm really impressed with this ESV. I've been using it for years, but uh, always at the top of the beginning of the of each uh, uh, each what. Uh, anyway, there's some really interesting. It says here that the answers that Habakkuk got conclusively affirm that God is not accountable to any man. He is in no way obligated to comply to man's ideas of how he should handle situations. So often Christians pray as though they could control the hand of God and direct the Almighty in his path. The answer of the Lord convinces Habakkuk that God is completely wise and sovereign in all his dealings. Yeah, that is great. That is really great. Yeah. Well, I'm glad you, you find that a blessing. That's a, that's a fantastic quote. Thanks for sharing it with us, Woody. That's really right on. Well, all right, men. Um, it's a little bit past a quarter of, so I better quit. I've got another class I've got to get to that starts at a quarter after one. So 
Lord, Chris. thank you for our time together and thank you for the tremendous insight that Habakkuk gives us into your workings and your, as our sovereign providential God. And uh, I, I love the book of Habakkuk. I, I absolutely love it. I think it's one of the most important of the minor prophets. And I'm glad these men are excited and interested in this study. We pray for them, give them a good Christmas time. I don't know what they're all doing, whatever they're doing. Some are traveling, please protect them. Help them to be wise and careful during this time of the COVID. And we just trust them all to you. Thank you for their, their growth uh, and transformation during 2020. I believe every one of them has grown in their walk with you, grown in their understanding of you, grown in their walk of faith with you, grown in their walk of loving obedience with you. Lord, continue your work of transformation in all of our lives. Help us to continue to grow as men of deep faith, men who walk with you, who then in turn represent you well. Trust each one to you. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, have a Merry Christmas, everybody, and enjoy Merry your Christmas. holiday time. Christmas. Merry Christmas. We'll see you on January the 6th. Thanks, Jim. Thanks, Jim. Bye. Merry Christmas. Thank, Thank you, Jim. Thanks, Jim. Bye.